So there you have it, folks. The St. Louis Arsenal actually provided arms for both the North and the South during the Civil War. Now, by early 1861, the Civil War was indeed looming, and the states were choosing sides. Missouri was caught in the middle as most of its residents supported slavery. Despite this, the Missouri Constitutional Convention of March 1861 voted to stay with the Union, but refused to supply men or weapons to either side if, war, if the war was to break out. This resulted in a state of war within its own borders between the U.S. Army and Missouri citizens, and the St. Louis Arsenal would become a primary target. In March of 1861, General Nathaniel Lyon arrived in St. Louis to command the Union Company D of the 2nd U.S. Infantry. At that time, Missouri Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson was a strong Southern sympathizer, as were many of the state legislators. Lyon was accurately concerned that Jackson might try to seize the federal arsenal in St. Louis if the state seceded and that the Union had insufficient defensive forces to prevent the seizure. One of Union General Lyon's first objectives was to strengthen the arsenal defenses, but he was opposed by his superiors, including Brigadier General William S. Harney of the Department of the West. However, Lyon soon requested the aid of General Frank Blair, who agreed that Southern leaders might try to carry neutral Missouri into the Confederate movement. Lyon was soon named commander of the arsenal, and General Blair formed a secret paramilitary group of some 1,000 men called the Wide Awakes. On April 20, 1861, a pro-Confederate mob at Liberty, Missouri, seized the only other arsenal in the state, the Liberty Arsenal that we've already talked about. In response, Lyon, armed with the Wide Awake units, on April 29th, secretly sent all but 10,000 rifles and muskets to Alton, Illinois. A few days later, on May the 10th, he directed the Missouri Volunteer Regiments and the 2nd U.S. Infantry to capture a force of Missouri State Guards stationed at Camp Jackson in the suburbs of St. Louis with the intention of seizing the arsenal. Federal troops surrounded and captured the camp, forcing it surrendered. Now this was primarily just local boys made up uh, a ragtag army, if you will, under Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson, and they traveled from Jefferson City and set up their camp calling it Camp Jackson, near where modern-day Lambert Field is. Now, Lyon's actions gave the Union a decisive initial advantage in Missouri. They now had control of the arms. But what happened was, is when he surrounded those Missouri boys and proceeded to march them off to jail, things heated up. After capturing the force of Missouri State Guards, he marched them through the streets of downtown St. Louis right to the arsenal. This long march was widely viewed as a public humiliation for the state's citizens and immediately angered the citizens who were gathered to watch these Missouri boys being marched at Bayonet Point through the streets of their city. Before long, riots broke out as people started hurling rocks at the troops forcing these Missouri boys off to jail. 
And sure enough, a pistol somewhere in the crowd was fired into the ranks, fatally wounding one Union soldier. The Federals returned fire into the crowd, and they killed 20 people, some of whom were women and children, and they wounded nearly 50 others. This became known as the St. Louis Massacre. The incident sparked several days of rioting that was only subdued with the installation of martial law and the arrival of federal regular troops. The highly publicized affair further increased the tension in the state of Missouri. People now realized that the federal government would come in and use force, if necessary, to make sure that, un that Missouri stayed within the Union. Later, General Nathaniel Lyon wound up being killed at the Battle of Wilson's Creek down at Springfield, Missouri, on August 10, 1861. The St. Louis Arsenal remained in federal hands throughout the Civil War, and with St. Louis firmly in Union control, provided substantial quantities of war material to the armies of the Western Theater. When the Civil War was over, the arsenal again became relatively quiet. In March of 1869, ten acres of the arsenal grounds were given to the city of St. Louis for the creation of Lyon Park, named for General Nathaniel Lyon. Two years later, in 1871, it was determined that the ammunition could be better secured at Jefferson Barracks, and the supplies were transferred. However, the grounds were retained by the U.S. Army. Later, the arsenal complex was transferred to the United States Air Force and the Department of Defense. Today, it continues to serve as an active military reservation, housing a major branch of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Today, the vast majority of the St. Louis arsenal and grounds are closed to the public. Visitors and cameras are not allowed inside the complex. Having a little history behind us, now let's look at the current military bases in Missouri. Now, you'll be surprised to know that there are a total of nine active military bases in Missouri. Because the state borders the Mississippi River, it's able to support Navy and Coast Guard stations, meaning that all five branches of the U.S. military have at least one base in the state of Missouri. Belton Army Reserve Center is in Belton, Missouri. Fort Leonard Wood, St. Robert, Missouri. Missouri Army National Guard Base in Jefferson City. The Navy Operational Support Center in St. Louis. Jefferson Barracks Air Guard Station, also in St. Louis. Rosencrans Air National Guard Base in St. Joseph, Missouri. Whiteman Air Force Base, located in Nobnoster, Missouri. The Marine Corps Reserve Training Base in Springfield, Missouri. And finally, the U.S. Coast Guard Station in St. Louis, Missouri. So let's take a look at a few of these current military installations. Let's start with Fort Leonard Wood. The history of Fort Leonard Wood dates back to the dark days just before World War II. By 1940, war had engulfed Europe and much of Asia. By then, many Americans believed that it was only a matter of time before the country would be drawn into what was rapidly becoming a global conflict. The nation's leaders worked to increase the size of the armed forces, procure modern equipment, and merge the two into effective fighting force. One of the major challenges was finding suitable training areas for the expanding army. 
1940, the War Department decided to establish a major training facility in the 7th Corps area. This command comprised most of the states of the Central Plains. The site for the new training center was south-central Missouri. On December 3, 1940, military and state officials broke ground for what was known as the 7th Corps Area Training Center. In early January 1941, the War Department designated the installation as Fort Leonard Wood. The post is named for Major General Leonard Wood, a distinguished American soldier whose service to this country spanned 40 years. A warrior and a surgeon, Wood graduated from Harvard University and began his military service as a surgeon during the Apache Indian Wars in the 1880s. And he won the Medal of Honor of Valor. And at the outbreak of the Spanish-American War, he commanded none other than the U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, better known as the Rough Riders. That's right, folks. His second-in-command was none other than Teddy Roosevelt, who eventually took over the regiment when Wood was promoted. Now, Wood served as the Army's chief of staff from 1910 to 1914. His last position of service was as governor general of the Philippine Islands, which Spain had ceded to the U.S. after the Spanish-American War. Wood held this position until his death in 1927. Now, while the post was initially designated as an infantry division training area, Fort Leonard Wood quickly also took on an engineer training mission. So, a lot of history there, folks, at Fort Leonard Wood. Let's look at our next fort, Jefferson Barracks. What is now a St. Louis County Park once served as a training center for thousands of area soldiers. From its establishment in 1826 until it was closed in 1946, Jefferson Barracks, the nation's first infantry school of practice, supplied and prepared troops for battle in six of the United States' major military conflicts. Now, back in 1826, General Edmund P. Gaines, commander of the Western Department of the Army, Brigadier General Henry Atkinson, commanding officer of the 6th Infantry Regiment, Explorer William Clark, and Missouri Governor John Miller spent several days searching the banks of the Mississippi River for the perfect location for a new fort to replace the old Fort Bell Fountain. A site near the city of Carondelet, 10 miles south of St. Louis, was recommended and then approved by Major General Jacob J. Brown, commanding general of the Army. On July 10, 1826, two days after the deed to the land was signed, the first military troops, six officers and 245 enlisted men of companies A, B, H, and I, commanded by Brevet Major Stephen Watts Kearney, arrived at the new post and started building temporary quarters that they named Contandment Miller, in honor of Governor Miller. In 1827, the military post was formally named Jefferson Barracks, in honor of Thomas Jefferson, who had died the year before. Even William Clark's son, Meriwether Lewis Clark Sr., would join the ranks of Jefferson Barracks. 
It was also designated the first infantry school of practice. The first conflict that the men of Jefferson Barracks were involved with was the Black Hawk War of 1832. Troops were deployed from Jefferson Barracks to push hostile Indians back into their village in present-day Iowa. Chief Blackhawk was captured and brought back to Jefferson Barracks as a prisoner of war. In 1832, the United States Regiment of Dragoons were formed and stationed at Jefferson Barracks. The Dragoons, trained to fight mounted or dismounted, were the first unit of permanent cavalry in the United States Army and were later called the 1st U.S. Dragoons. Along came the Mexican-American War. Jefferson Barracks became a major military post during this conflict from 1846 to 1848 when it served as a rest and supply station for most U.S. troops deploying to Mexico. Jefferson Barracks was the recruiting center for outfitting and training most of the regiments organized for the Mexican-American War in 1846 and upon the return of the triumphant U.S. forces in 1848, many were deployed to Jefferson Barracks due to its strategic location. In 1853, newly elected President Franklin Pierce, who had served as a brigadier general during the Mexican-American War, appointed Jefferson Davis as the Secretary of War. At Jefferson Barracks, Davis soon organized the 2nd U.S. Dragoons, known derisively as Jeff Davis's pets because the commissioned personnel assigned to them were the best in the Army. Albert Sidney Johnston served as Colonel and Robert E. Lee as Lieutenant Colonel. A list of the officers of the 2nd U.S. Dragoons includes some of the ablest commanders of the U.S. Civil War. This brings us to the Civil War. During the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, Jefferson Barracks served as a military hospital for both sides and as a recruitment depot for the North. In 1862, construction of the Western Sanitary Commission's hospital facilities began at Jefferson Barracks. By the time that the hospital complex was complete, it could hold 3,000 patients. By the end of the first year of the war, over 5,000 sick and wounded had been admitted, and by the end of the war, well over 18,000 soldiers had been treated at Jefferson Barracks Hospital. This then brings us to the Spanish-American War. With the declaration of the Spanish-American War in 1898, many regular Army and volunteer regiments were once again formed and outfitted at Jefferson Barracks. Jefferson Barracks was permanently designated as a recruiting depot in 1906, despite the fact it had been used as such intermittently throughout its use through the generations. Then on to World War I. On March 1, 1912, Jefferson Barracks found its place in the world as the main base for the 1st Aviation Parachuting Unit. That's right, parachuting. None other than Albert Berry became the first person to ever successfully parachute from an airplane which was being flown by Anthony Janus over the field at Jefferson Barracks. During World War I, Jefferson Barracks served as a training and recruitment station for soldiers heading to Europe. During the 1930s, the Citizens Military Training Camp, or CMTC, was held at Jefferson Barracks. 
young men could spend one month a year at the post being trained as a soldier, and after three years, they could enter the military. Also during that time, the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, had camps at Jefferson Barracks. On to World War II. During World War II, Jefferson Barracks was a major reception center for U.S. troops being drafted into the military. It also served as an important basic training site for the Army. Then later was the first Army Air Corps training site. Elements of the Central, later Eastern, Technical Training Command were stationed at the barracks. During World War II, Jefferson Barracks had a peak area of 1,500 acres and had billeting space for 16 officers and 1,500 enlisted persons. Jefferson Barracks was decommissioned as a military post in 1946 with the end of World War II. So, quite a fascinating history when we talk about Jefferson Barracks. Now, on to another new fort. Whiteman Air Force Base. Now, Lieutenant Whiteman, who the base is named after, is believed to be one of the first American airmen killed during the assault on Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. For his gallantry that day, he was posthumously awarded the Silver Star, the Purple Heart, the American Defense Medal with a Foreign Service Clasp, the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with one bronze star, and the World War II Victory Medal. Fourteen years after his death, General Nathan F. Twinning, Air Force Chief of Staff, informed his mother, Mrs. Whiteman, on August 24, 1955, that the recently reopened Sedalia Air Force Base would be renamed Whiteman Air Force Base in tribute to her son. Today, Whiteman is the home of the 509th Bomb Wing, which operates and maintains the Air Force's premier weapons system, the B-2 Stealth Bomber. Now, Whiteman's heritage dates back to 1942, when the U.S. Army Air Corps officials selected the site of the present-day base to be the home of Sedalia Army Airfield and a training base for glider pilots. The pilots of one unit trained at the base the 314th Troop Carrier Group participated in the invasion of Sicily in July of 1943 and the D-Day invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944. Following the war, the airfield remained in service as an operational location for Army Air Corps C-46 and C-47 transports. In December of 1947, the base was inactivated but with the birth of the U.S. Air Force as a separate independent service and subsequent information of the Strategic Air Command, the site of the former airfield was considered for other missions. For example, in the late 1940s, it was considered as a possible site for the West Point of Air, the U.S. Air Force Academy. The story of the 351 Strategic Missile Wing at Whiteman began in April of 1961 when test borings made in the area around the base determined the geological makeup would support a land-based ICBM missile system. Three months later, the DOD, Department of Defense, announced plans to base Wing 4 of the Minuteman ICBM system at Whiteman. Groundbreaking ceremonies with a host of dignitaries in attendance were held in April 1962 
at the site now called Oscar 01. The 351st Strategic Missile Wing was activated on February 1, 1963 to oversee construction and act as base operating unit. Amazingly, the construction and equipping of the 150 missile sites and 15 launch control centers took only two years, two months, and two weeks to complete. On June 29, 1964, the 351st went on full operational alert. The 165 individual sites, 15 command centers, and 150 launch facilities were scattered throughout Missouri. All the sites had to be separated by at least three nautical miles, and the resulting missile field covered over 10,000 square miles. The hardened inner side cable system, made up of over 1,770 miles of buried cable, connected this web of facilities. The launch control facility for the 510th Strategic Missile Squadron, Oscar 01, was programmed for an area southeast of the base, but the water table associated with Lake of the Ozarks made construction there impractical. Instead, the Air Force placed the facility on Whiteman Air Force Base, the only operational ICBM missile launch control facility actually located on a base anywhere in the world. The end of the Cold War spelled the end of the 351st and deactivation of the Minuteman system. On January 8, 1993, the Wing's first launch control center shut down operations, and on May 18, 1995, the last Minuteman missile was removed from its site. However, custody of Oscar 01 passed to the 509th Bomb Wing. Now, the 509th Bomb Wing traces its historical roots to its World War II ancestor, the 509th Composite Group which was formed with one mission in mind, to drop the atomic bomb. The group made history on August 6, 1945, when the B-29 Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. On August 9, 1945, the group again unleashed the atomic inferno on Nagasaki. Within the month, the Japanese signed the terms of surrender aboard the USS Missouri. In late 1945, the group settled into Roswell Army Base, New Mexico. Twelve years later, the 509th moved to Peace Air Force Base, New Hampshire. SAC decided in 1965 to equip the 509th Bombing Wing with B-52s and KC-135s. In August of 1951, SAC selected Sedalia Air Force Base to be one of its new bombardment wings, with the first all-jet bomber, the B-47 Stratajet, and the KC-97 aerial refueling tanker assigned to the unit. Construction of facilities was conducted by the 4224th Air Base Squadron until October 20, 1952, when the base was turned over to the 340th bombardment wing. The first B-47 arrived on March 25, 1954, and by the end of the following month, the wing had 18 bombers assigned. 
On October 12, 1954, the first KC-97 arrived. On August 24th of 55, <clears throat> Mrs. Whiteman was notified that the base would indeed be named after her son. Today, Whiteman is still the home of the 509th Bomb Wing, which operates and maintains the Air Force's premier weapon system, the B-2 Stealth Bomber. The B-2 first saw combat on March 23, 1999, during Operation Allied Force in Serbia and Kosovo, the first sustained offensive combat air offensive conducted solely from U.S. soil. Although the B-2s accounted for only 1% of all NATO sorties, the aircraft's all-weather precision capability allowed it to deliver 11% of the munitions used in the air campaign. In October 2001, the B-2 bombers led America's strike force in Afghanistan, hitting the first targets in the country to kick down the door for Operation Enduring Freedom. The combat missions lasted more than 40 hours, with the aircraft operating continuously for more than 70 hours without incident before returning to Whiteman Air Base. On March 21, 2003, the famous shock and awe campaign of Operation Iraqi Freedom began with the unprecedented use of precision-guided munitions on board the B-2. In 2008, Whiteman Air Force Base welcomed the Missouri National Guard's 131st Bomb Wing into its midst as an associate B-2 unit. In this capacity, Missouri's citizen airmen work alongside active duty personnel to maintain and fly the nation's most advanced bomber. Air Force Reserve's 442nd Fighter Wing is also stationed at Whiteman. The 442nd is comprised of nearly 1,800 members at Whiteman Air Base and two geographically separated units, the 917th Fighter Group at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana and the 476th Fighter Group at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia. The wing is responsible for the combat readiness of 48 A-10 Thunderbolt aircraft, all the A-10s in the Air Force Reserve. The 442nd moved to Whiteman from Richard Gebauer Air Force Base in Kansas City in 1994. The A-10 is a single-seat fighter jet designed to provide close air support for ground forces by attacking tanks and other armored vehicles. The A-10 was designed around the GAU-8 Avenger, a heavy rotary cannon that forms the aircraft's primary armament. The cannon is capable of firing 3,900 rounds per minute. The A-10's hull incorporates over 1,200 pounds of armor and was designed with survivability as its priority, with protective measures in place which enabled the aircraft to continue flying even after taking significant damage. The A-10 can also employ a wide variety of conventional munitions, including general-purpose bombs, cluster bombs, laser-guided bombs, joint direct-attack munitions, and Maverick and AIM-2 Sidewinder missiles. The 442 has been involved in the Berlin Crisis, the Cold War, Desert Storm, Operations Deny Flight, and Southern Watch, Enduring Freedom, and Iraqi Freedom. The final group stationed at Whiteman is the Army National Guard's 1-135th Attack Reconnaissance Battalion. 
The 1-135th Attack Aviation Battalion's mission is to conduct attack, reconnaissance, and security operations that complement other maneuver forces. They control 13 AH-64D Apache Longbow helicopters. The National Guard is the only component of the armed forces that has two missions. Their federal mission is to provide federal support when called upon by the President. This could be for overseas contingency operations or federal emergencies like Hurricane Katrina. Their state mission is to support the governor of Missouri in times of state crisis. So there you have it, folks. A lot of information. When I was asked to put together some information about forts in the state of Missouri, wow, what a list. Hope you enjoyed this show. Keep listening. Until next time. This is Professor Jim Paisley.